Well, what's up, everybody? Hope you're doing great. Hope you're having a fantastic day and that you can feel the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. And for those of you that are watching online, you're absolutely part of us and connecting with us, part of the church. It's one of the amazing things about technology is we get to not only be here in person, but when we can't make it in person, we can watch online. And so we're in a series uh, on the book of James. And so I want to encourage you, go ahead and pull your Bible out, pull your, open up your Bible app. We're going to be taking a look at James chapter 2 here in a minute, and we're going to be focusing on the power of church culture. Uh, church culture is extremely important, and so if you have been around Grace Church for a little while, or even if you're new to us, uh, you have probably recognized that we're a very welcoming church. Uh, we're very loving, we're very friendly, and that's on purpose. That's part of our culture. Uh, that's part of Pastor Nicole and I, uh, just vision and, and the way that we feel that a church should be. Uh, we feel it should be fun. We should feel it should be enjoyable. We feel like nobody should feel condemned or judged walking in, like you, you don't have to wear certain type of clothes. We do encourage clothing, uh, but you, what you wear doesn't matter, uh, you know, but that's the type of church that we are. Uh, and you feel that. And then one of the other things that we're very proud of in our church culture is that we are known to be very community focused. We are absolutely focused on, on the neighborhoods and, and neighbors and people and, and who they are. And, and, and ha we have this incredible opportunity to share Jesus' love with our community. And that's a part of our calling as a church. And that's very, very important to us. And then no doubt for us as a church, we feel like we're Christ-centered, that Jesus is the head of this church, and we are founded on God's word, and we'll continue to preach God's word and, and the clarity in it. And so when you understand church, you know, for us and us meeting together, you understand the power that comes with it, you know, that we get to be a part of this, you know, something that, that the Lord established, something that Jesus established, that, that the disciples reached out and, and formed the early church, and we get to be part of that. So it's very important for us to be meeting together and meeting online and worshiping together. And even in saying that, we understand that that's important, amazing, we love it. But if you've been around church for a little bit, you know that at different times there is opposition that comes against the church, whether it's from a community or from a culture, whether it's from within inside the church. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, uh, there may be things like gossip that stir up and people will start talking badly about other people. And, and just FYI, if you're new to Grace Church, we absolutely have a no gossip policy uh, here at Grace. We don't allow anyone to speak negatively about others. If you have to deal with something with somebody, we encourage you to go talk to them directly. That's how the, the Lord and, and Scripture calls us to do that. So, but sometimes gossip will stir up. Sometimes people will experience pride and ego. A church will, will get this just kind of proud you know, feeling or atmosphere, or, or sometimes even just words will be spoken against that church from outsiders, uh, you know, or, or just sometimes the church itself speaks negatively about other churches in the community, and that's something that we've never done, we will never do. We absolutely pray for the other churches in the community, uh, those that are, are founded on Jesus and his word. You know, we, we're on the same team, and we recognize that, and that's what we want to do, but sometimes the devil will try and creep in. He will, and he'll try and use gossip or pride uh, to cause division, uh, not only in a particular church, but amongst churches in a community. And so one of the things that you recognize, though, is one of the strategies or why that Satan uses that is because he's trying to cause division because he at one point in time had oneness with the Father. I mean, do you understand that? Like, like Satan was the, the, the worship leader in, in heaven. He, he understood the magnificent aspect of the Father and the Trinity and what that looked like. He was part of that. 
But then pride rose up from within him, and, and he, he comes, you know, gets cast out of heaven. And so now he uses division against the oneness of the Father that he establishes in churches. And so the devil hates church. He hates it, hates it explicitly, and will do anything to cause dissension in it. Um, but here, you know, just as the lead pastor, like, I'm going to do all I can, and I know you guys too, like, we're going to do all we can so that does not happen. Like, come on, where are you at, church? Like, we want to be healthy, we want to be strong, we want to be reliant upon the Lord and who He is and have health in our culture uh, as a church, and that's so important because here, you know, at Grace Church, we do believe that Jesus is the head, and we declare Him as Lord and Savior, and that will continue, and so we just, we love that about us, and so... When we talk about our church, you know, we, we want to use life-giving words. Uh, when we talk about other people in the church, we're going to speak things that are encouraging, that are a blessing to them. When we talk about other churches, we're going to speak just, just amazing things about them to, to see the positive in what they do. And that's how we stay unified. So that's how we stay connected. Because in James chapter 2, what happens is he's writing about the aspect of favoritism. And so favoritism, you go, huh, like he, the, James is a power-packed book, and all of a sudden, right in the beginning, in chapter 2, at the very beginning of his letter, he's writing to a number of different churches in this, in this region. They've all been dispersed because of persecution. The, the, one of the big things he starts to talk about is favoritism. Favoritism talked about in the churches, and so we've got to understand the context of why James is writing this. And so to me, uh, what, what you do is, is in order to, to understand why he's talking about this, you act, we actually are going to take a quick look at the end of chapter 1, because he kind of gives a little bit of foreshadowing about where he's going. So in James chapter 1, the last verse is verse 27, and this is what it says. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So every single one of us, we understand what it is to face hard times. We, we all have that as part of our story in our life. And so we face troubled waters. And so what James is saying, he's like, hey, you've got to be looking out for those people who are in a time of distress. And so what this means for us as a church is we are to rally around each other. When somebody in your connection group is going through a difficult time, then you support them, and you encourage them, and you pray for them, and you're there. And if, they're, if they move, like you're there to help them move because like, moving is terrible. And so it's like, hey, you need help, and I'm going to show up with my truck. And so we rally around each other as a church. And then in our community, we show the radical love of Jesus to those that are in need, that are struggling, those are they're in difficult times. And so I want to give you just this mandate that the Apostle Paul gives that's so powerful and significant for us as a church. And so this is the power of church culture, and this is what we want to have. And so we want to live by this, and this is in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, therefore I, he's, he's speaking to first person, this is Paul, he says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle be patient with each other, making allowance, allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body 
one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So when you see those verses, can you see just the connection in them, uh, the, the oneness with the Father, the oneness that, that we're to have as a church, and that's incredible. We're supposed to have this unity amongst each other as the body of Christ. And so James has to address favoritism because favoritism causes factions and envy to rise up from within the church. And so the, the, uh, before we get into the text in James, I wanted to share one more verse. It's actually Romans 2.11. It says, for God does not show favoritism. So multiple times, favoritism is actually spoken against. So God doesn't have any favorites except me. <laughs> Just kidding. Because if I would say that all of us have been exposed to favoritism before. It's possible that you have been in an environment before where somebody shows favoritism or, or they like somebody else a little bit more. And let's be honest, like you maybe grew up in a family where it just, you know, you, you had siblings and somebody seemed to be the favorite. Uh, and so you, you know what comes with that. You know the feelings that come with that. And maybe you're sitting here and you're going, yeah, my parents treated me like a favorite. And you understand what that felt like. And, and so like, there's different feelings that come with that. And maybe it was at work. But all of us have experienced the negative that comes when another person is showing favoritism to another. And so James, in talking about you and I and the power of church culture, he uses some very strong language to talk about favoritism. And so the first point I want to share with you is that favoritism affects what you see. And starting in James chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? And so... For us, when we read this, James is writing to churches. You know, we as a church, we can take this and apply this to our modern day culture. So let me ask you a question, church. When you look around the room, what do you see? What do you see? What, what do you experience? What, what are you looking at? What are you noticing? Because favoritism will cause us to have blind spots. And when we see other people that we're supposed to be connected with. Let me give you a practical example. So we live here in Florida. So when I pull up these two shirts, whether you're a fan of one of these teams or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, to me, honestly, it, it, it doesn't really matter whether you're from out of state or you moved here from another state and you've got a favorite team. But when I lift up these shirts... You automatically, if you're one side or the other, you have a feeling 
Like something comes up and you're like, burn that one. How dare you put that one on the stage with my other shirt? Like, I can't believe that you would do that, Pastor Aaron. And so what happens is, let's say you're going to an event, a birthday party or a thing, you know, and, and all of a sudden you, you walk up and you see somebody wearing a shirt, like the one that you like, the one that maybe you have, or the 25 that you have in your closet, you know, and you go, oh, like there's another person that's wearing my shirt. They are like me. Don't we think that? And we understand and we go, oh, those are my kind of people. And so they may be a complete stranger and you don't know them at all. You don't know their background. You don't know their history. You don't know anything about them at all. But just simply because they're wearing the right color shirt with the right emblem, we make assumptions, don't we? And man, what a practical example. And, and I would say the same is true about a lot of different things in life and in the church because we make assumptions based on what we see. And so the reason James is talking about favoritism is because he's saying, hey, you've got to remove this filter by which the lens that you're looking through. Because you and I have a lens, how we see things with our eye, and it exposes a lot. And so there's a filter by which we see. And Jesus himself had no favorites, none whatsoever. In fact, when the religious people would try and box him in to, to pick a category, to, to do a certain thing, he, he would go and, and say, no, 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 like, you don't get it. I'm not that. And he would literally, like, because they, they, they tried to say, aren't you, aren't you and your disciples supposed to do these certain things like we do? Aren't you supposed to fit in the box with us in this description and look like us? And so oftentimes when, when they would confront him about these particular things, Jesus would go and hang out with normal people. Like I, and when I say normal people, the religious people would call them sinners and go, how dare you? hang out with those people. They're notorious for what they do and how they live, and Jesus saw them as normal, but they would call them you know, unclean. I mean, gosh, when, when you look at so many different examples, even when Jesus goes up to Matthew, who, who, was, who was one of his disciples, he says, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew leaves his tax collector booth, which tax collectors were hated, I don't know anybody that likes tax, paying taxes, you know, but it's like, hey, not only was he hated because he, he would take money and oftentimes tax collectors would skim off the top, but the, those people that were Jewish, that were tax collectors for the Roman Empire, the, the, the common people, they saw them as betrayers. You know, they, they saw that they were like, how dare you work for them and charge us over and above? And yet Jesus walks up to him and says, I want you to follow me. And that very night, Jesus hang out with Matthew and his friends that the other religious people, they didn't quite agree with how they did certain things. So what is it that you see when you follow Jesus? I mean, Peter's another great example of, of somebody who's following Jesus. I mean, I, I always, whenever I'm reading the Gospels, I always get a little bit jealous because I'm going, man, I would have wanted to be you know, one of the 11, not the 12th guy, but one of the 11, you know, and follow Jesus. I mean, wouldn't that have been so cool? So Peter, Peter's following Jesus for years. I mean, he, he knew him. He knew him well. They were friends. And, and Peter knew that Jesus would never play favorites. And then as you see Peter's ministry unfold, 
what happens is G, uh, Peter has this vision where literally this tablecloth comes down from heaven. God gives, gives him this vision, this tablecloth, and it, it actually had a number of different animals that were on it. And so those animals were representing different types of food that, that, that people would eat. So we're talking ribs and bacon and chocolate eclairs and Reese's cups. Like, I'm, I, like this is from heaven. And, and those of you that enjoy those things, you know, like God invented those from heaven for us because they're amazing. And so the reason this is important and I bring it up is because Peter's having this vision. And then Cornelius, another man who's a Roman officer, he has a visitation as well from the Lord, from an angel. And so what happens is these two men show up at Peter's house. They were actually uh, with Cornelius. And, and so they're like, hey, you know, he had a vision too. And so the, these guys show up at Peter's house and, and they say, hey, Cornelius sent us to come and pick you up. So we're going to Uber back to, to Cornelius' house, and, and we're going to hang out. And Peter's excited because he's like, man, we're gonna, I'm going to tell these guys about, about Jesus and the good news, and this is great. But normally, a Jewish person that Peter was would never, ever go into the house of a Gentile, a Roman citizen, that Cornelius was. But because Cornelius had had this vision from God, Peter shows up there, Cornelius tells him what he's experienced, and this is how Peter responds. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verse 34. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. It took Peter a little bit to get there. It did. And so my question to us is, not do you show favoritism, but where? We do. So I think the best thing that we can do is say, hey, I've got to admit, this is something I struggled with, whether a particular area, a particular thing. Maybe you look at somebody based on their clothing. You know, maybe they have a certain emblem or something, or maybe you, you, know, you, you see it, you walk into a parking lot or at work and they have a certain type of vehicle that they're driving or you see them drive by. Maybe it's their skin color. Maybe it's their economic status. And so the reason that James is bringing this up and he's talking about the lens of the, you know, the filter that you look through when you look at other people, I would say like he's being very, very direct and saying that we have got to look at others the way that God sees them. And the thing that's interesting about these two shirts is when you pull this down right here, right? If you pull this down, these two shirts are made by the exact same manufacturer. They're different colors. They represent different teams and universities and, and people. But these shirts are made by the same manufacturer. And they want you to buy either one. They don't care. And the thing that's so interesting is when we look at people with God's type of perspective, we're all made in God's image. God is our manufacturer. He's the one who makes us, and, and that's so significant. That's a big deal. We've got to see that. So you have a designer label. You know, it's God Almighty, and he's your dad and your father in heaven. That's, like, that's incredible. And so I just wanted to share this great verse in 1 Samuel 16, uh, 7 
In the second half of that verse, it says that the Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so we have to understand that favoritism affects what we see. The second thing that favoritism does, it it affects what we do. Continuing in the passage in James, in verse 5, James says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? And so what happens is favoritism promotes exclusivity. And so it affects how we respond to certain people in certain situations. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Because of our humanness, like we're human, it's a reality. We think a a certain thing about people that are well-dressed. If they're well-manicured, we notice, we recognize that. One of the things, you know, if somebody seems like they're well put together, we notice that. But what happens is they may just be the ones that are in opposition to the good news being shared. Of course, not all the time. No way. Not all the time, because that would be showing favoritism, you know, towards them and and putting them, you know, in a specific category. But it's just, it's another example how God's economy is so different than ours. It is so different. You know, it's interesting when James was writing there, he was talking about those that are poor. He's actually making reference to when Jesus was teaching. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew Matthew 5.3, it says that God blesses those who are poor and realizes their need for him. For the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so James is cross-referencing with Jesus' teaching, going, hey, you're looking at these people that are well-dressed. They seem like they've got everything put together. And you're showing you know, favoritism toward them. You're leaving this group out. And you actually are doing the opposite of what God has called us to do. And so I want us to take a moment. You know, this, this is strong stuff. This, like, we're all guilty of this. But I want to say like, out loud, as the pastor of Grace Church, I am so proud of you as a church and who you are. Like we do a really, really good job with this. I, I feel like our culture is healthy. I feel like us as a, a church, you know, and who we are. But I, I, I want to give a little bit of a warning. You know, when we read this, James is speaking very directly. So I, I feel like it's important for me to give us a warning because you can rest assured that this aspect of favoritism will be tested in our church. I mean, come on, let, let's be honest. When, when we look at our new building, I mean, I, almost every single day, I have people come up and say, man, I see the building, it looks great. Uh, other people in the community, gosh, it, everything's coming along. When you moving in, when you going to be in. I can almost promise you that when we move in, in just a, a month or so, a few weeks, whatever, that when someone comes in and they don't quite look like you do, or maybe smell like you do, how are you going to respond? Now, again, like I feel like we've done an incredible job with this, but I also feel that we're going to be tested in this, and I have no doubt that we are going to pass the test, and we're going to see it. And so for me, like I'm trying to prepare you for what's coming, 
you know, what we're experiencing. And, and so just be forewarned, you know, that that's going to happen because we want to, we're praying. I don't know, I don't know who you're praying for. You know, I've encouraged people in the past to have your circle of five. The five people that are in and around you in your life, whether they're, they're your neighbors or at work or family members, like the circle of five people that you feel like God has put in your life for you to minister to or love on. Or, you know, so we're praying that your circle of five you know, are going to be people who need the love of Jesus from you and I in this community. So alcoholics, addicts, those that are lonely, the ones that are hurting, and the ones that look like they have it all together, but really on the inside, they are so just, just struggling so badly. And those are the ones that are the hardest to pick out because they seem like they've got it all together, but really they're just this empty shell. And man, I just, I gave five examples, and I'll tell you what, that's our story, isn't it? Some of you, like, that's your story and who you are. Me too. Like, I get it. I, I totally understand. And so we have got to be deliberate to maintain the, the unity amongst our church because the enemy is going to try and weasel in. I promise you that. But we're not going to let him. Like, we're not going to have anything to do that. And so I just, like, that's something that we should be encouraged by. And, and so I just, I wanted to share this one final verse in, in closing with this message. So this is James 2 and verse 8 and continuing. It says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. Now, when I read that, I never, ever saw favoritism as a sin. And it's possible that you didn't either. You're like, hey, you know, they're like me or they're similar, you know, that kind of thing. But here's, like James is saying, for us as a church, in the way that we share the love of Christ, the radical love of Jesus in our community, when we show favoritism, it's as if sin. You know, and so it's something that we learned, though. You know what I mean? It, favoritism is something that we learned based on the environment that we grew up in. It's our upbringing. It's some type of teaching that we received along the way, some type of perception, maybe a way that we got hurt before, so now we put up walls against a certain particular type of people, but that's not God's heart. That's not his heart in who he is and what he calls us to. God is merciful. He shows mercy to every single person, and to me, I'm going, oh that we would continue to seek unity, that we as a church would be unified in, in that oneness with the Lord, that we would be one in Christ because Jesus died for every single person, regardless of who we were, regardless of all the things that we did in our past, that sometimes those memories come up and we go, oh, I can't believe I did that, you know, and the shame and the guilt and the memory, right? And, we, and, and so we don't remain in that place, though. For those of us that are in Christ, that's dead and gone, and now we're new and alive and we move forward in him, and that's wonderful because his love covers all of those sins that you and I have ever committed. And so favoritism, what happens is it brings to mind and the memory and the reality that favoritism creates smallness, doesn't it? It creates a small circle of people that look like that. But God is not about that. God wants to create this larger table. That's why you have this imagery of Peter having this tablecloth come down 
with all these animals for food and, and that all are to come, that God shows no favorites from one person to another because he welcomes every single one of us to the banquet table. That's what's incredible. Like you're invited into the banquet regardless of your past, regardless of your history. That's what's amazing. That's what you've got to recognize. If you are a person that you don't yet know Christ, God is welcoming you in. Doors wide open. The question is, are you willing to see the price that was paid for you to walk through the threshold, which is his son? Jesus was willing to lay his life down and die, bleed, be tortured, excruciating pain for hours and hours and hours on end till at one final point when he breathed his last. So there was a price. But man, I'll tell you what, three days later, Jesus shows his power and his victory over sin and death. He rises from the dead for us, for us to, have, to be able to have a seat at the banquet. And so the little card you know, the little place setting with the, the, the nice plates and the forks and knives and the goblets, the card place setting has your name on it. And God's like, I'm setting the table for you. And you have access to that. I mean, can't you just see the magnitude of what James is talking about, what God's communicating to us as a church? And to me, for us, this absolutely correlates with us as a church to do communion together. I mean, right? So when you look at communion and the understanding, the importance of it, you know, for us to partake communion together, it's communing, it's having unity with the Father and one with Him. And so if you uh, walked in and you d didn't yet get some communion elements, if you would love to have some, just slip your hands up. Our ushers will be happy to serve you. For those of you watching online, we're going to partake together in just a minute. But do you understand the banquet table? Jesus is sitting at the Passover meal I mean, we're, the Passover supper is something that the Jews had done for thousands of years. Jesus did this every year of his life when it was time for Passover. It was very common for them in that culture. And, and so what, what it was is, you know, it, when, the, when the Hebrews were in, in, in Egypt and they were enslaved, you had the 10 plagues that came, and the final one was the, the plague of death. The angel of death would come. But if, if, they, if they had the sacrificial lamb blood that they put over the doorpost, then the angel would pass over that home, not bringing death. And when Jesus was sitting with his friends, the disciples, other people, partaking the Passover meal together, he made a change. He said something different that was uncommon for them. They hadn't heard anything like this before. What he did, and if, if you want to go ahead and take that top, top layer of cellophane and pull out that wafer, what happened was, you know, the, the, the unleavened bread was part of, the, part of the whole deal, the ceremony, and they got it. But Jesus declared something different. He said, the bread, this is my body. And I'm sure when... When the disciples were sitting there and the other, you know, Jews that were very pious and righteous and they were going, what? I'm, I'm sorry. What did you just say? And what do you mean by that? So the magnitude of what Jesus was communicating literally was turning the Jewish culture upside down. Changing the Passover meal to become communion. Why? I'm a Gentile. I'm not of Jewish descent. Jesus shows no favorites. He gives us communion with him 
regardless of our background, regardless of our upbringing, regardless of our heritage, regardless of our story, Jesus says, this is my body that I'm giving for you. And then, of course, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And I'll pray over the elements in just a minute and we'll partake together. But man, alive, do you understand? Like he's saying, this is my body. And then he picked up the, the chalice and the chalice of wine. And, and it was the, they understood the chalice of wine. There were multiple times during the Passover meal where they would take you know, the, the drink of the wine and it represented certain things at certain times. So it was very common, but he picked it up and it was different this time. He said, this is my blood, which is going to be spilled out for you. And here's the deal. Like, they didn't get it. This was the night before that Jesus was going to be crucified, betrayed and crucified. And where they, you know, after that, they got it and they understood. But in that moment, they didn't understand. Praise God that you and I, we get to sit here and understand the magnitude of what Jesus was communicating. And we get to partake together to have unity in Christ as the church and with each other. And so let's pray and go before our Father. And so, Lord God Almighty, you, you are incredible and amazing. Thank you for the oneness that you established. God, thank you the, for the fact that you are, you showed us what it is to be unified. You're a trinity. You have three parts, but you're one in three. And you have designed us in the same way. And Father, thank you so much for showing that to us. Lord, would you help us in our lives, in the times that we show favoritism. Lord, there, there have been things and we, we've been mistaught. We've, we're, we're miscommunicating. We, we have a misunderstanding regarding a certain group of people, a certain person because of a, a particular thing or a way. And Father, I pray that you would bring that to light. Lord, would you forgive us as well? If favoritism is a sin, God, we confess right now that we are sinful and we've done this. Would you cleanse us from this in our life and help us to be non-biased, non-judgmental, non-critical, but be welcoming and merciful, showing no judgment or, or, or harshness, but be generous with the love that you give to us, to every single person, because we didn't deserve it either. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless these elements. Lord, I pray that you would bless this, this wafer, this bread, the body of Christ. Would you bless this juice this, that, that, that shows that Jesus has died for us and he bled so that we could be forgiven of our sins. In your name we pray. Amen.